Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. I'm also the author of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and my goal is to decode exactly how to design a life that really matters, because if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. If you're new to the show, take a deep breath. Almost everything is trivial. Only a few things are essential, and that's what this show is all about. My job is to interview, get deep really with authors, entrepreneurs, psychologists, and everyday people to help explore what's essential. Through a process of listening, unpacking, and going deep with each guest, we turn each episode into practical advice for intentionally planning and living in order to move forward. In today's episode, I get the opportunity to speak with Matthias Moro. Matthias is a most interesting individual. He lives in Brazil, and he reached out to me on LinkedIn to talk about his experience both before and after reading Essentialism. This is an essential intervention of a different kind because the intervention doesn't take place in this conversation. It happened before. Two particularly painful experiences brought into focus for Matthias the costs of non-essentialism and the possibility and path and promise of essentialism. Listen to this episode if you want to feel inspired to actually make the changes you want to make in your life. If you don't want to wait anymore. If you want to be able to see what life looks like if you let non-essentialism continue, but also what it can look like if you really embrace this fully. Now, here we go with Matthias Mora. Matthias, are you there? Yeah. Hi, Greg. <laughs> well, this is great to have you here. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure to me to talk to you. Matthias, will you just begin by telling us your story? Yes. Uh, so my story begins in December of 2017. I can say I was having a very, very non-essentialist life. I was very pressed <laughs> on the work. I was recently promoted to be a manager on my work. And also I was in the end of a long relationship. So all that pressure um, started to, to, to give me some weird sensations. And later on, I discovered that I was having panic attacks. I went to the doctor and took some medicines, but also I decided to change the way that I was living. So I decided to take a month away of my work and try to see the life with a new perspective. In that month, I traveled to Toronto to study English for a month and had an amazing time there. It was so valuable for my life. And also in that time, I met a girl who used to live in the same city that me here in Porto Velho. And um, she was moving to Boston, but first she was visiting some friends in Toronto. What city are you from? I'm from Porto Velho. It's a city in the middle of the Brazilian Amazon forest. Describe what you, either what you see right now or just the environment that you live in. 
okay, I'm, I'm looking through my window and I see a lot of trees <laughs> and a big river called Madeira River. Porto Velho is a medium city. You know, we are very far away from the big cities of Brazil, like Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo. And it's it's a quiet city. It's the capital of my state, Rondônia. And so you meet this girl in Toronto. She's also from your same city, but she's traveling as well. Yes, she was moving to Boston because she has family there. Uh, her name is Diana. When I came back to Brazil, we were still in touch. When I came back, I was pretty decided to take a time away from Brazil, like doing something else in the world. I wasn't uh, loving my work anymore, and I wasn't decided to to take the life that I was living in that time. So um, I started to talk with some professors of Canada, and we had that professor from University of Ottawa who became interested in my research Months later, I traveled back to Toronto, uh, to, to Ottawa as well, and I decided to go to New York City to meet Diana. Uh, we spent four days together in New York, and then I came back to Brazil again, and months later, um, weeks later, sorry, uh, she called me, and she said, well, I tested five times for pregnancy here, and I'm pretty sure I'm very pregnant right now. She was pretty decided to come back to Brazil. She wasn't loving to live in Boston anymore. So she traveled back. We started our family together. And later on, we discovered that the baby that we were waiting was a girl uh, named Elena. And I think when she came back and I started to see the belly growing up, that sense of responsibility uh, was growing up inside me again. I started to work a lot again, feeling the anxiety. And I remember I was very focused on the work. There are some villages here uh, from Porto Velho. Uh, they are small villages, like fishermen villages. And I was traveling to there because of the work. And the villages are so small and so rustic, they don't even have uh, phone signal. So it's like eight hours straight by boat. When I came back from one of those cities, uh, days later, Diana and I went to the doctor because she was starting the ninth month of pregnancy, 35 weeks of pregnancy. And we went to the doctor to schedule the birth of Elena. When we got there, the doctor started to do a lot of exams and we can see in her face that something was wrong. Uh, she found uh, a undetected disease. Um, so we left the clinic, went straight to the hospital, and Diana went straight to the surgery room. Um, one hour later, the doctors called me in a private uh, room, and they said, your girlfriend is fine, your daughter was born, but uh, she is sick. Uh, she's anemic. There's something wrong. We are trying everything, but you have to prepare yourself because uh, she could die today. Wow. Um, in that moment, I, you know, all my life started to, 
to pass through my eyes. I was I started to question myself, where was I? I was working so much. I didn't realize that was coming. And uh, I think I was trying to blame myself to be so away of my family. And, uh, well, we lost Elena in that very night. Um, and I'm so sorry. Thank you. Uh, as you can imagine, I, again, decided to change my entire life uh, with, I don't know, with a new philosophy of life. I was trying to find some meaning. Um, and then I remember I was look, reading some stoic books in that time, but also I was trying to find my creativity. Again, I was reading uh, The Artist's Way by Judah Cameron. And in that book, uh, Judah says that you have to meet your interior artist at least once a week. So I was visiting a bookshop that is also a coffee shop here in my city and trying to write something, trying to, to, to find some pleasures, but it was really hard to write something in that time, trying to align my ideas. And I remember one specific day I was selecting books to buy and I was holding like five or six books in my hand. And I came across with a book called Essentialism. I don't know if you know this book. <laughs> it's from Greg McHugh. And it's a great book. You should try. <laughs> and uh, that word, Essentialism, uh, grabbed my attention because I knew the concept of minimalism. But I didn't know that there was a different kind of uh, philosophy called Essentialism. So... I started to, to read your book immediately and right in the beginning um, I saw this, your story about the meeting that you had the day that your baby was born and I, when I was reading that I was thinking this guy could be me because I probably would do the same on, on months before. I was really identified uh, of, with your book. And I remember I studied the book. I, I didn't just read. I studied, took some notes, and tried to apply everything in my life. And it was really amazing to, to, to read something like that because it was a way to guide my life again. Hmm. I think this is my testimonial about essentialism. What it did for you is it helped you to take control of your decisions of, of living by design, not by default, not by what else is going on around you. It sounds like it gave you permission and also some principles and practices to really do what you felt was the right way to live life. Yes, precisely. When I was reading, I was linking with all of the things that I was doing in my work, like saying yes to everything that my boss was asking me. I was trying to be a manager that he was trusting on me to be. I was trying to, to be the best manager that the department had. 
but I wasn't feeling purpose on that. I was trying just to be someone else, someone different from Matheus from before. I was a simple engineer, but now I'm a manager, so I have to behave like that. So I was saying yes to all that uh, meetings, all that extra time jobs, and wasn't truly for me to be in that. Uh, and when I was at home, I could just think about the next day and the checklist and uh, the schedule that I, I had to be in. And I think my life was losing the meaning that I was supposed to do. The job of manager was consuming all of your time at work, but also all of your time when you weren't at work, because that's where your mind was. You're just thinking about the job all the time. Instead of thinking about what you felt inside was the right thing to do with your life. Precisely. And there's a lot of authors that say uh, you can only find happiness in the present moment. And I think I was living always in the future, always thinking about the next thing, the next thing, the next day, the next week. And I couldn't find happiness. I remember I had this reflection when I was in Toronto uh, because I was living the present day every single day. I was trying to, to enjoy my days there on English classes or I don't know at bars, but uh, I was living the moment. And when I came back to Brazil uh, and I started to work again, I was missing that, that sensation that being myself, being the person who lives in the present. That kind of uh, way of thinking, I think, caused me anxiety. And that was the, the source of my, my disease, I guess. I know what you're describing when those periods of life, when you are fully here now, you feel more alive. You are more alive because you can pay attention to what's happening. You're experiencing it now. And so you can bring all of your intelligence and creativity to this moment. And so you can make better choices. You can make different choices, choices that feel more like you. And you touch that in Toronto. You could feel that richer, more abundant life. But that other word you used really grabs my attention, disease. That you felt that you had before a disease inside of you that always kept you away from this moment. It actually sent you into panic attacks, but later the same habits produced another set of problems for you. You've had these two wake-up calls. But I'm interested that you call it a disease. Yes, I, I really meant that because I think it's everything. Uh, it's, to me, it's a disease. You live focused just on your work and you have no time for a family and also to your hobbies. The life 
needs an adjustment. You can't live that way for too long. Like if you are in a running, you have to sprinting all the time. If you don't do that, you won't finish your, your race. So it causes me, um, I was always tired. I was always without patience. I, I was always away of the present moment. And I remember when I was reading uh, your book, there's a lot of notes on my notebook, uh, quoting your phrases. And I, I, I usually write in black ink and in red ink. I took some personal notes uh, linking to things that are happening in my life. So I, I remember that I had to stop doing that because I couldn't uh, read properly the book because I was stopping too much thinking about things about work and things about that I had to do. So I decided to read it and then coming back and read again just the highlights and, and then deciding the plan to change that situation. At first, it was hard even to concentrate enough to read. You had to really... This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you... Cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. Be deliberate in saying, okay, I am going to read this. Yes. Otherwise, I will be pulled back immediately into the noise of work. But you did that. You made that deliberate choice. You made a trade-off. Yes, I did. And I remember I, I, I'm, I think I'm the guy, at least on the Brazilian version of your book, there's a, a table that says when you are non-essentialist and when you are essentialist. I'm, the, I'm always the non-essentialist guy. I was reading that and said, oh, my God, Greg knows me because this is me all the time. <laughs> and I started to do like a, a plan 
to change, creating time and space in my agenda to be present, to be with my family. And I felt that I was recovering myself from that noisy life that I was having. What specific changes did you make? Well, considering that I didn't have the clarity to decide what was essential for me, at least uh, accepting, of course, family, but in the work, I knew that a lot of things, the major part was non-essential to me. So that part of exploring my life was really, really quick. It was fast to do because I knew what I had to eliminate. So the second part, I started to eliminate all the projects that doesn't fit me. And I decided to say no, but explain to my boss and to my colleagues why I wasn't involved in that anymore. And they understood immediately. I think the loss of my daughter helped me to justify the decisions that I was taking that time. And I was barely forcing myself to do things that I like, biking and running and reading. So I was creating space of my life, blocking uh, my agenda to have some time, quality time, if you will. The effects of those decisions appeared immediately. Like in days, I was feeling better, less stressed, and I can say healthy. It's like you became quite bold. That level of loss, that heartbreaking loss of your daughter, just freed you from from feeling you have to do what everyone else thinks you ought to do or what everyone else seems to be doing. And so you went and had these conversations with your manager, with your colleagues. You actually just went to explain to them, this is what I should be doing. This is these are the projects I should be working on. These ones I don't think I should be working on. You changed your behavior in your own life to make time to exercise, to do things that were meaningful, and also with family. And the combination is that in a very short period of time, you seem surprised how quickly you felt different and restored and renewed. Absolutely. I was analyzing that it's so uh, hard on the beginning to do that. Uh, I was scared about saying no to people. And I was scared of the consequences that, that actions could do. But I decided that I had to try, at least trying to say no more often. You say in your book that at least people can I don't know, judge you, but then they start to respect your decisions. And it happens right as you write it on the book because it was everything you said. Uh, my boss uh, 
in the beginning, he asked me some urgent meetings, like from in, in extra times. And I, I was, I remember I was saying, no, I can't go there because I have to go to the doctor. Or no, I can't go there because I have something else scheduled. And he said, yes, but you are a manager. You have to be there. And I said, I'm a manager, but I'm not a plantonist. <laughs> I have a life outside. So I said to him that I wasn't available all the time. If you asked me earlier, I could be there, but I can't cancel the compromise that I have. So I'm sorry. And in the beginning, he was mad. <laughs> I got mad. But then I, I felt like he started to respect me more. I think a lot of people listening to this feel the same fear you're describing. They feel that if they were to push back and say no, or to even just push back and explain, oh, I already have a commitment, so I can't do that, they think, oh, I'd just be fired. Or they just, I don't know, they're just fearful of it. It's not even like they know what they think would happen. It just feels too awkward, too scary to even attempt it. What gave you the courage to have those conversations, even though you felt fear? Well, I think I didn't have much to lose because I was feeling awful. I remember I was thinking, well, I have to try to change. I identified that that kind of situations on work were the source of uh, why I was feeling in that way. I couldn't change my life if I didn't talk to the people in the work and modify my posture there. I was thinking, well, it's the only way, it's the only path to the freedom of my time and to feel better. I have to face it. So I think that was the, the courage, the way that I changed it. I love that question. Like, what do you have to lose? This is already making me miserable. This is already burning me out. This already is sucking up all of my family time. It, like, I don't want this life. I want a different life. So what do I have to lose from at least trying to do life differently? If the way I'm doing it isn't working for me personally, it's not working for my relationships, it's not producing great results at work, why not try the essentialist path? The non-essentialist one is the worst. I think it's, it's hard to, to be in the cycle of essentialists. It's like the PDCA that we have on Project Manager. What you have to plan, you have to do, you have to check and take action. I don't know if you know that cycle. To the essentialist concept, it's the same. You have to be aware of those decisions that you take every single day because... That happened to me. Uh, the time and and the 
the needs from the work and the people that live around you, uh, they start to grab your attention and and then grab your time and kidnap your agenda. So that's why I sometimes read again the notes that I took in that time. And I already read your book uh, three times uh, because there's something new. There's something always new to learn uh, depending on the life that you are living, depending on the time that you are living. So you need to protect your time. You need to protect your life in that context. Yeah, I love this idea and this reminder for all of us that we need to protect life. That if we believe that life is precious, then it must also be protected. It's worth being careful with it and not using it up reactively and thoughtlessly and frantically and all in the name of just that's how people normally do it. That's how managers are normally expected to work in your company. That that isn't a good enough reason to make choices like that. That's not enough of a reason to do life that way. And listening to you, I feel inspired myself to, to reevaluate, to remember that life is a choice. And though we can't control the consequences of our choices, we can take responsibility for them, take control back and make choices more carefully and thoughtfully. And that sometimes when we do that, we even give other people around us permission to reevaluate and rethink the way they're making choices. That's really the thing, the thing that I was thinking when I told you. I think I learned the lesson that time. I think I'm not going to be the same anymore after, you know, leaving that horror movie um, of losing my, my daughter, but also uh, being blind to the situation uh, to prove that last December, one year ago, we had an amazing news that Diana was pregnant again. And in, in that time, I remember that I decided to be more present to leave that properly. And of course, I spent most part of this year at home, but I, I had a lot of work to do as well, doing home office. And I can say now that I, I lived the, the waiting of our son, Leonardo, that was born in September. Congratulations. Thank you. I can remember much more comparing to Elena's pregnancy. So I remember when I sent you the message, I was typing on my computer and I was sometimes stopping and looking at him 
and saying, yes, I'm grateful for taking that decision of changing my life because I had a lot to lose not paying attention what I was living. That's a really beautiful description. Imagining you there pausing and looking at your son. And I love imagining that now. But also now the flip side phrase, I have a lot to lose. It's such an interesting idea that if we've lived the way of the non-essentialist, what do we have to lose? We've given up the most important things in our life for things that are less important. So what's to lose by trying to change it? We've already given up and sacrificed the things that matter most to us. Whereas in, on the other hand, once we choose the way of the essentialist, we have a lot more to lose because now we are investing in our health and our most important relationships and our most important friends in the unique contribution that we want to make beyond those relationships as well. I mean, we have the precious things. And that's what that moment means to me as I listen to you. Is, oh, now I have some of the fruit of essentialism. I don't want to lose this. I want to protect this. I'm so glad I've invested here. And if you think how much we could uh, lost when we weren't aware of that we were living on a non-essentialist life, I mean, what we could be experiencing, I think we have to open our eyes and trying to see the life with this new perspective. Leonardo, my son, always starts to cry when I grab my phone and text to someone. I think he doesn't like phones. So he's my reminder to be present in that moment, to say, okay, okay, you won. That's a, another powerful visual to imagine your son somehow aware even at his young age, whether you're really there or not, whether whether your attention is with him or not. They do notice our children. I know that I need to be more present and be more of an essentialist myself. I once went on a, an extended vacation, all of us as a family, and we went to a country where the, we were going to be out in the jungle. It wasn't Brazil, but where we were, there was no internet in the home where we were going to stay. And we could have paid extra to have the internet, but I wanted to be present, and we all wanted that. So... We didn't get the internet package. And so for two and a half weeks, uh, there was no internet in our lives. And we still talk about that time. My children still talk about that time. It was so present when we were together. 
when we were playing together, when we would go off and travel and see things, I do think they can really tell and feel the difference. It's a powerful idea that, that they notice even starting that young. What would you like to say in conclusion for other people who are at different stages on the journey? Maybe someone's listening to this and they want to get out. They don't want to be a non-essentialist anymore and a non-essential life, but they're afraid. Or maybe they want to escape, but they feel they have a lot to lose by asking new questions and pushing back on their manager or changing their habits. What would your final words be to them? I think uh, the problem sometimes isn't just you don't have time for yourself, but I think the problem, uh, it's the amount of time that some work or some activity requires from you. And also sometimes it's the importance that you give to something. Uh, For me, I was guilty not to perceive what was noise and what was really fundamental in my days. So when I realized that, I knew that that lifestyle wasn't uh, bringing me to my objectives. So what I can say is you have to first stop for a while and decide what is the main goals in your life. And, and then you have to analyze if everything that you are doing, it is guiding you to there. Because if don't, uh, maybe you are just, I don't know, losing your time. Yeah, what you're saying is that there's always a really big downside to non-essentialism. And that is the opportunity cost of something really important and essential. And that figuring out what that is and focusing on it and evaluating every other decision in life about whether it's helping to get you to that end is a great way to think about your decisions. It's one decision that makes a thousand so that you can make sure that every choice reinforces and takes you towards the things that matter most and so that we aren't sacrificing those things without really knowing that we're sacrificing them. Giving up something valuable, precious for things far less valuable and trivial in comparison. Matthias, it's been real pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, I know I speak for everybody else who's listening. It's humbling to hear of your story, to benefit from your wake-up calls. Uh, 
from the painful experiences too. And we're in your debt for sharing them. We've all made mistakes. Every person listening to this has valued things that weren't valuable. Even though their stories are different to yours, we all relate. We're all in this together. And to hear both parts of the story, the before and now the after, the wiser Matthias in this second act of your story. And for all of us listening to this, we're interested in your next act, the third act, the next big part of the story for you and also for us. What can we do now that we're waking up? What can we do now that we remember that we can design our lives around what's really essential instead of just letting it be led by the non-essential stuff around us? What is possible if we ask what's essential and start to eliminate everything else? Matthias, thank you for being on the What's Essential podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. It's a huge pleasure to me share my story and talking to you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. It's been amazing to see what's happened already with this show. The show has become, in fact, the top 3% of podcasts globally within just the first five months of its launch. And that's because of you. You have made this special. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.